0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithal. Wellwithal believes that self-care is community care, premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithal's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well with all.
1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, he's known by one name, Banksy. The British street artist who has stayed out of public view since the 1990s is arguably the most famous and lucrative street artist in the world. His art is driven by his activism on display in Boston as part of a traveling exhibition called The Art of Banksy. Over 100 original works of both outdoor art and indoor pieces are in the exhibit Organized without Banksy's permission, instead, exhibitors independently sourced more than $35 million worth of Banksy's art to include. Banksy's global influence on art division as it's called, got us thinking about greater Boston's own local art activism scene. Who are the street artists transforming our city walls and spaces, and how do they interpret local and global issues through their art? Later in the show, 34 alums of Boston's Berklee College of Music are Grammy Award nominees. Two of them talk tenacity and technique, meet the boundary-breaking Pakistani vocalist and the innovative arranger of video game music. But first, joining me remotely, Abigail Satinsky, curator and head of public engagement at Tufts University Art Galleries and program director of the Collective Futures Fund. Welcome, Abigail.
2: Hello, happy to be here.
1: I'm glad to have you. Also with me, Cedric Buiswan Douglas, street artist and designer who has created artwork around Boston for more than two decades. He is also the founder and creative director of The Up Truck. Welcome to Under the Radar, Cedric. Thank you for having me, Callie. I appreciate being here. And also with me, Sneha Suresta also known as Imagine in the art world, a Nepali artist, educator, and social entrepreneur who measures the Nepali alphabet with the Boston graffiti scene. She is also the arts program manager at the South Asia Institute at Harvard. Welcome, Sanea. Thanks, Callie. Nice to be here. Oh, yes. I'm glad to have this discussion. I want to start by asking a basic question, which is going to sound basic to all of you, but I think it's important to uh, give people some parameters. So I'll start with you, Sneha. What is art activism, what we're calling artivism. How do you How do you define it?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would define, I've never defined this before, so we're going to give it a shot. But okay. I mean, isn't, I mean, I think at least for me personally, art has always been about activism in a way, in a world where, you know, for me, like I don't see people or culture um, that I come from represented as much. So when I work towards making that a priority and, and priority to make a visible statement of it, I think that becomes activism. I don't think it should because it should be normal for people to be want to be seen for who they are in their culture and their backgrounds, I guess my art could be considered activism in that way, uh, because we're trying to raise social consciousness and awareness about an issue, uh, about a social issue. So that's how I would see it.
1: So you do these fantastic murals. People may have seen them all around town. Some at one at the Mass College of Art and Design, the Gutman Gallery over at Harvard University, Central Square. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about your work is that you combine your Nepali heritage using the Nepali alphabet with graffiti. Talk about your work and how that serves what you want people to, to see about your activism.
0: Sure. Um, So when I first moved to Boston, I was introduced to graffiti by one of my current mentors, um, Pro Black, or his name is Rob Gibson, goes by Pro Black. And so I was introduced to graffiti as an art form that I sort of studied as this art form that is based on letters. And, you know, the letters is the image and an art form that came out of resistance, came out of a want for young people to be seen. And so I was really inspired by that. I didn't grow up around graffiti at all. I was born and raised in Kathmandu, Nepal. And so when I was introduced to this, I was just fascinated by it. And, you know, I've been painting all my life, but to be introduced to this new form of art, I was really fascinated. And I started sort of you know how young artists start off is sort of copying the style of like your mentors or your people you look up to and so i was doing that and over time i realized that my style looked you know more like classic graffiti sort of block letters but i i felt like i was missing out on what my voice could look like and so then i thought hmm maybe what if i wrote in nepali i mean i grew up writing and reading nepali before i learned english and so you know stylizing letters and kind of being able to show off my personality and style was kind of came naturally when i started writing in nepali and since then there was no going back i I felt like you know i felt like wow okay this feels like i can represent my culture and where i'm from in an authentic way because coming from a super tiny country, you know, people are curious if you know all Nepalese look like me, or you know, or people would ask me, oh, do all Nepali people like this food? Or do all Nepali people talk like this? Or your English is so great. And all these things. And it's so hard for me to answer one answer and be this ambassador to a country that has over 150 languages and ethnic groups and cultures, you know? And so I felt like I wasn't Nepali enough in the U.S. because I didn't have an answer to these questions. And so my quest to kind of find myself and and show an authentic version of myself and also be authentic to my people, when I started writing in Nepali, I was like, you know, 100%, this is Nepali writing. And this is how I have stylized it and this is, and the colors in my work represent festivals, um, festival colors that my uh, family and ethnic group that I belong to celebrate. This is how we celebrate. And so now my work is based on my native letters and the colors represent, you know, what I was surrounded by at home. So in my murals, it's, it's my Nepali handwriting is what you see. And, you know, the fact that I write mostly in Nepali, it sort of brings about this curiosity and this conversation among people who see it. And I love that.
1: Um, Over to you, Cedric Douglas, integrating graffiti ideology into design and advertising. I want first for you to answer the question from your perspective of what is what we're calling artivism to you.
3: Artivism to me is using your art as a form to communicate social issues to the world, if I could define it simply.
1: And how do you think the work that you do, and I'd like you to describe it, you have very interesting murals. People may have seen the giant Tyrannosaurus rex over by Northeastern. It's very complicated. It's more than just a big old dinosaur. And I love so much of your other stuff that I've seen. But describe what you're doing as you integrate graffiti ideology, as you say, into design.
3: Yeah, so my work, you know, stems from similar to Shea's, comes from graffiti, and I've been doing graffiti since the 90s. And when I started doing graffiti, I really was a shy kid. I really wanted to find a way to express myself. Um, I was, you know, being in such a big world and not and having so much to say, no one really cares. So graffiti was my way to do that and also to connect to peers and, and have friends that were creative. And as I grew as an artist, I've learned that there was more things I wanted to talk about. I didn't want to just talk about myself and my name Vice One. I wanted to talk about the vices that people had, you know, in the world and all these different social issues. The world's not an amazing place. I mean, we have war, we have, you know, so many different injustices in this world. So I wanted to use my art as a tool to express that. and. When I was in college, I was lucky to have a professor by the name of Chaz Mulan Davies, who was an international poster designer from Zimbabwe. And Chaz taught us that design isn't just about, you know, creating a beautiful website or a beautiful magazine, but it can be used to express yourself. You know, he was faced with persecution in Zimbabwe for creating social messages through his poster design. And I was like, you know, that's, That's amazing. Um, I was also inspired by an artist by the name of Lee from New York. Um, He had a train that said, stop the bomb. And it was a social commentary on the war between Russia and the United States. And I was like, wow, it can be about that too. It can be a message. It doesn't have to be about vice. It can be about, you know, what's happening in the world. And there was another artist locally from Boston that goes by the name of Click you know he had a lot of murals that were taught had socially engaged murals that I was made you think beyond just his name and that really all these things together kind of made me start thinking differently about how i was expressing myself and as i matured as an artist i wanted to talk about things that were happening in resolves with race i wanted to talk about things that was you know happening in this world because you know When I die, when I leave this planet, I wanted to contribute something that's going to help inspire another artist to do the same and to continue to make the world a better place.
1: Now, speaking of tools, because you said this is a, a tool for you to express yourself, one of your artivism pieces was called Tools of Protest. You printed rolls of caution tape with phrases like I can't breathe and don't shoot and handed it out to demonstrators calling for police reform. This was after the death of Michael Brown in Ferguson. How did that come to you? And I mean, that's a very clear expression of activism through art. And I'm just curious about where the creative impulse came to to make a statement in that moment.
3: Yes, that actually piece was created in 2015. And It was in partnership with an organization called mass lives against police brutality and they used it the first time for a protest but the idea came to me i've been working with caution tape since college actually and um when i came up with this idea it was more about i was watching the news and hearing about what was happening to black men and women in the united states and i was just mad about it and i wanted to contribute and somehow i really didn't go to protest but i wanted to create something that people could use and the caution tapes are, they're not just caution tape, they're like memorials, they're the last words said by people that were killed by police. So one says, don't shoot, which was the last word by Mike Brown. So I wanted to create a memorial of his words, like if that was, could be physical. The other caution tape that I created was I Can't Breathe, which was after Eric Gardner's death. And the third one, which I don't use that often, but it's called It's Not Real. It was the last word said by John Crawford III, who was killed in a Walmart, mm. um, who had a, a BB gun, who they you know, said it was real and he got killed. So these are like memorials to them. And then I wanted those to be used for people to, to protest with them. And the caution tape is a material that is meant to glow during the night. And it's kind of taking that material and remixing it to give it new meaning to use for a tool to for people to protest. And after George Floyd, you know, they were sitting in my studio. No, I was trying to reach out to organizations to use, and then people were just like, "I, I want it." So I so I started sending them out to different parts of Massachusetts, it, it, out of the state, different parts of the state. You know, mailing them out to people, and it was free of charge for people to use. And I ended up getting a small donation for I think a thousand dollars. Um, and then that was used to continue to buy more, so I could use for people to protest, and and that was a that was you know that that project was you know definitely beneficial to helping people express themselves during the protests after George Floyd. Mm. So
1: Abigail Satinsky, you are curating this Collective Futures Fund, so you get a big picture view of artivism in the greater Boston area Mm -hmm. and I wonder what you have to say about what you're seeing and I'd even put it in a bigger context like in the in set a time frame so has it changed last five years last two years last three years are people more aware of art being used in this way
2: yes I would say they're they are a lot more aware and that's really encouraging I mean when I think about a term like artivism I would agree it's It's thinking about engaging with social issues. And and that can happen in a lot of different forms. It can happen in the studio. It can happen on the street. It can happen as part of public art. Um, but it's really about, you know, uh, dialogue and community process, accountability, and thinking about the public um, that you want to reach with your work, and also thinking about the context in which your work appears. I think that's also a very important um, sort of role that artivism plays to sort of talk about institutions, to talk about, you know, what's happening in public space, and so it really provides this critical creative response to, you know, these really dire circumstances that we find ourselves in today. And I think you can't really talk about street art or public art for that matter, without talking about where it is, who owns where it is and who benefits from that work. Because oftentimes, you know, street art or public art can be mobilized against communities that are present by developers who use art to whitewash their gentrification plans. You know, and I think that's something that we're getting a lot more awareness around now, you know, because we need stabilized communities to really have a generative public art that's reaching people, that's making people feel seen and heard, which I think is, is sort of like a lot of what artivism is. So at Collective Futures Fund, and, um, we're a new fund. We started last year, but we're going into our second cycle, April fifteenth. So please apply. Um, we give out eighty thousand dollars a year in the amount of two to six thousand dollars for Greater Boston artists to make their own independent public art and community-based projects. And we're really trying to like give that money to artists so that they can imagine what the future looks like for Boston, because it you know it shouldn't be driven only by institutions and sort of top-level folks. It should be driven by communities and getting together and talking about what they need and what they wanna see in terms of those vibrant creative communities that we know are here. And so we do fund things that are like public art, like mural projects, but we also fund, there's this great project by George Halfkenny and Melissa Tang where they're doing a kind of street art project at Mass and Cass where they're developing a kind of public artwork around the resonance of that area and the engagement center and sort of like having a new way for communities to see themselves, which I think is what the other artists that are with me that I'm privileged to hear about your work are talking about. And so, yeah, I, I do think there's a real growing awareness of like yeah what it means to be an artist in Boston what does it mean to be a community that gets to stay here and sort of thinking about art as a way to bring about new kinds of public dialogue so that many people get to be part of that conversation.
1: So we were inspired to have this conversation because of the Banksy exhibit so I want to get all of your takes on Banksy and the impact because many people would see an image of Banksy and consider him to be a very well-known activist, artist, if you will. And so I wanted to get your response to both Banksy's work and if you've seen the exhibit, you know, what the exhibit says. So I'll start with you, Abigail, and then we'll, we'll check back with everybody else.
2: Yeah. So to be frank, I haven't seen the exhibition. Um, also attached is a pretty hefty price tag, which I think really speaks to, you know, this not being a public Um, Exhibition, sort of like his other work, which is out on the street. You know, I think, as I mentioned before, we have to think a lot about context when we're thinking about this sort of unauthorized exhibition of all these Banksy works, which is in Harvard Square, particularly in the Harvard Co-op building. And we also know that, you know, around 2015 or so, there was some non-local developers. They bought up a lot of those properties in the area and they let them go vacant because they're waiting for these big corporate anchor spaces this drives down street traffic in the area local businesses are like more and more closing there and this exhibition is in this important institution that I've been in Harvard square for a long time the co-op bookstore so i feel a little suspect of this whole project because you know it's produced by this production company in toronto it's further contributing to like this kind of corporate real estate and the spectacular economy there and so i guess i would say it feels hard to want to visit this exhibition, even though I may respect Banksy's other projects, because it feels like a distraction from what other great, amazing art is happening. And it really is sort of like about this movement of Harvard Square to be sort of not community-centric.
1: Cedric, I would like you to pick up on that. How do you feel about Banksy being sort of the icon of artivism and is he deserving are he they deserving of that title and that position
3: Banksy, you know he does have roots as a graffiti artist originally and he's definitely pushing the bar and the work that he does makes people look at all of us as artists' work seriously and it's kind of interesting because he's commenting on being pop and capitalism but then he becomes that and then he's critiquing that in itself so it's it's a weird thing. And now people are co-opting his stuff and reselling it. And, you know, it's a really crazy thing, but like his work is really profound. There's a project that he did where he sold two paintings for, mil- for two point, I think it was $2.9 million. And he used that money to help build a hospital in Bethlehem to help children with disabilities. Like you hear about his provocative stuff like the painting being shredded. And, mm-hmm. but he does some really, really interesting thing that are kind of, kind of giving back to the communities that he feels that need it. So I really love that he does that. But I think on a crea- an artistic level, I think he's really, really, really pushing the bar in how we think about art and social issues and who owns the art. And I think he's like the modern day Michel Duchamp and the things that he's investigating within his work. But I think what Abigail said, you know, this show, you know, they're his pieces that were purchased that are being reselled and they're charging a mission and it becomes something else. And does that stain his name and his work And street art? Is street art going to get so played out that no one's going to care about it anymore? I don't know. You know, graffiti started off as black and Latino and they were the ones that kind of founded this graffiti, which evolved into street art. But there aren't any famous Latin Top like the top 10 are not black or Latino, and that's kind of sad to me. And I just wish that that was a little bit different. But I think Banksy's work is very provocative, very creative, and he's inspiring other people and other artists to think about social issues as a way to talk about art in a public space.
1: So, explain who Michelle Duchamp is so we understand the context in which you said that Banksy was influenced by.
3: There was a time period where. Hyperrealism was the standard. And Michel Duchamp, and not just him, there was other artists as well, came in and said, does that have to be what art is? And can it be an object? Can it be, you know, an idea? And he's famous for the uh, urinal that he transformed. Ah, I'm familiar with that. Yes, thank you. Okay.
2: He's the art historical trickster.
3: (laughs) Yes. Okay.
1: That's a good one. I would just say this as I moved to Sneha. The only Black graffiti artist of some note, of course, is dead, and that's uh, Basquiat. So you can think about it in that way. That is true. All right, Saneha, I'd like to get your response to Banksy, what you think about in terms of setting the standard for artivism and whether or not you think the work does that.
0: Yeah, I do think that Banksy's work gave a huge spotlight to street art and gave a lot of credential to street art as becoming this quote-unquote legitimate art form or like a high art form. But when it comes to the show itself, like Abigail mentioned, the hefty sort of entrance price and then, you know, Banksy hasn't given permission to show that work. It's a collection of, you know, I don't know, 35 million or something worth of work being shown uh, by people who own it. I think it takes away from the essence of his work in activism artivism. And so I guess the question is like then is it a Banksy piece anymore if you if you take it out of context if you take it out of public view and the whole point of street art is at least for me the draw is the democratic nature of street art is that everybody can see it regardless of who they are, and those are the spaces that I want to create my art in.
1: I would note, Sneha, that you established the first children's art museum in Nepal, Mm -hmm. and Cedric Vaiswan mentioned that Banksy, whatever conglomerate it may be now, also has gone beyond the work on the walls, on wherever they are, to realizing something that plays out in a different way in community um, back to what Abigail said about connections in community. And that seems authentic in the way that maybe this, this exhibit isn't, but my larger question then is, and you said yourself, actually, uh, you told my producer that it's unrealistic to paint a mural and think that will save the world. You got to do something else. So speak to that if you would.
0: Yeah, I think there's this uh unrealistic maybe even naive approach of like you know let's paint a mural here and you know I'm doing a service to this entire place and this will sort of you know save the world or bring about awareness about this one uh huge important issue that we've never been able to solve and (laughs) I think it's it's important to realize and be realistic that it's not just one mural or one artist that would change a whole whole point of view of a of people. I think it's a collective effort over time that can help in showing people a different perspective.
2: Can I add something? Yes,
1: go ahead. Of course, yeah,
2: Abigail. Yeah, I I just think, you know, as um as Sneha said that, you know, social justice is a is a long-term process. It is, mm-hmm. you know, it unfolds over time. It involves and needs lots of different perspectives. And so when we think about kind of saying something like does this mural change the world, then we're putting expectations on like as an event on a long process, and that artists, you know, should be contributing and that we should, you know, think through the successes and failures, but that it's not about one gesture changes the world because that's just not how it works. And you know, one thing I think about as like an interesting project to watch in Boston is what's happening in Nubian Square around the public art initiative in Nubiana. And that they are commissioning all these murals pro black and Stephen Hamilton, Chanel Thurville, among them, other folks. And to think about that as part of a narrative around like black ownership and community wealth and stabilizing communities in that area, and for the folks there to have a chance to see each other and build culture and build strength and power that then enacts justice and change. And so if we think about these gestures as part of a larger narrative of of this, of the change we want to see, then it's not about one mural does the work. It's about all this process that goes into continued work.
0: Right, right. I, I do agree. And I think it's so important to reiterate this message, especially at a time where a lot of corporations or uh, organizations will sort of hire us uh, by us, I mean, like people of color, artists of color, women of color, to portray their face of a company as like, look, we support these peoples and then have a big mural. But that's not enough. And so I think this is a message to not just those companies and the nonprofit, you know, just organizations, but also to artists, To when it comes to public art and their power and responsibility in creating work, to be aware of that.
1: A lot of artists will say, look, I, I don't have to have a message in what I'm saying. I don't, I don't have to respond to all that's around me that could be responded to. I see it. I'm just not responding to it. I'm just drawing. A pretty picture or making an interesting sculpture. And that's all I'm going to say. It it means nothing more than that. And I don't feel a responsibility to do it. Do artists have a responsibility to be artivists? I'll start with you, Cedric Visewan Douglas.
3: No, I do not think all artists have a responsibility to do that. I think some of us choose to because we're just moved to, because we can't just accept the status quo. We just can't sit, like, leave the world how it is. You know, we have to use our art to make people think. And we're all just a piece of making change. And it does happen over time. And every younger artist that we influence to encourage them to do something will help change in, in the world. You know, it, it's, it, you know, it takes a lot of people to make this change and even talking about this on the radio and everyone writing about it and all these different ways of for it to change for people to see and go oh i didn't know that much about street art i didn't know that much about graffiti i didn't know about these issues and the more they think about it the more they see it the more it's going to make a change but some people can choose not to do that everyone has a right to do whatever they want as artists but for me, I want to inspire other artists in the younger generation to, 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 to think about it. Just think about it. And if it is for them it is because you know a lot of this work is in the public and it's open for everyone to to criticize and see and have an opinion about in this there are some challenges with that it's a really tough sport it comes from graffiti you know you're doing it illegal you're getting chased by the police you're getting arrested you're getting into fights there's a lot of toughness that came out of that that prepare you to deal with public art and to deal with criticism to deal with all the things that come with it to make it's tough for us to be able to express ourselves and to talk about things in the world. So there's a whole history and culture around the work that street artists do, the work that we all do, the work that Banksy's doing. And not everyone is built for that.
1: Um, Abigail, looking globally at your group that you curate, what say you? You know, we can think about people
2: that don't want to participate in social issues or feel like they don't have to, but in a way, when you put your artwork out into the world and you share it with others and you exhibit it, that's in a context of like, who's the audience? What's the economy around your work? How is it going to be distributed through the world? So I think all of these things have political dimensions. And I think that if we think about many ways for us to express issues. So if we have an open mind about what it is means to think about contributing to the social sphere, then I would say that we all have a responsibility to think through how we do that. Maybe it doesn't look like direct activism, and I don't think everybody should be doing that, but it should be like, I think, a consideration as an artist who is your community? Who do you want to be around? What impact do you want to make? And those are, you know, those have political dimensions to them. So yeah, we, you know, when I think, when I curate and when I fund artists through the Collective Futures Fund, you know, it's it's about artists that are aware of, of those decisions that they're making and thinking through
1: that. And it's just about intention. All right, Sneha, you get the last word. Is it the responsibility of artists to practice artivism? I agree with both
0: Cedric and Abigail in that, It depends on the artist whether they want to create work that speaks to their environment, speaks to what's happening around. And then context matters too. Context in terms of like who sees it, where it's created matters. So when we're talking about street art, I as an artist definitely think about who's going to see it. What do I want to say? My responsibility I do see as, you know, what does my voice say and what do I want the message to be? For young people to look at a woman of color and think what do I want them to think or inspire or anything at all Um, I do see that as my responsibility however when it comes to studio practice private studio practice I do think there needs to be uh, you know art making for the joy of it and maybe for the beauty of it because we all like beautiful things so I would
3: say a little bit of
0: both
1: Well, I thank you all for joining me for this great conversation. A lot to think about, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for
3: having me. Thank you for having me.
1: Abigail Satinsky is a curator and head of public engagement at Tufts University Art Galleries and program director of the Collective Futures Fund. Cedric Vizwan-Douglas is a street artist and designer who has created artwork around Boston for more than two decades. He's also the founder and creative director of The Up Truck. Sneha Shurasta, also known as Imagine in the art world, is a Nepali artist, educator, and social entrepreneur who meshes the Nepali alphabet with the Boston graffiti scene. She is also the arts program manager at the South Asia Institute at Harvard. Coming up, a Pakistani vocalist who caught the attention of former President Barack Obama and an award-winning musical arranger who transforms video game music into orchestral scores. They are just two of the 34 Berklee College of Music alum who have been nominated in this year's 2020 Grammy Awards. We talk with them about their successes and how their time in Boston and at Berklee has influenced their craft. That's next This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶